And we have a very special guest on the show today, Vijay Prasad. Vijay is a historian, journalist, author, and activist. Vijay is the executive director of, of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, the chief editor of Leftward uh, Books, the chief correspondent for Global Trotter, Globe Trotter, excuse me, and a, and a columnist for Frontline. Vijay is also the author of 30 books, or at least 30 books, including Washington Bullets, Red Star Over, The Third, the Third World, uh, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, um, and The Poorer Nations, uh, A Possible History of the Global South. Vijay also has appeared in two films, Shadow World and Two Meetings, uh, and it is a true, true honor uh, to have you on the show today, Vijay. Thank you uh, so much for coming. I know you've had a very long day. Um, welcome to the show. Listen, first I want to tell you, Ryan, I'm glad we're doing this on StreamYard because today I learned about Twitch and I learned about some other kind of bizarre app-based thing. So, you know, I can deal with this whole StreamYard and Zoom and so on. I mean, old dogs have to learn lots of tricks in the world these days. <laughs> Yes, I'm in the same boat. All these apps are, are new to me as well. <laughs> um, well, the first question I wanted to ask, I mean, the, and the main reason I want to have you on the show is to help build more of an international consciousness on the left in the U.S., particularly with regards to China. Um, and I think there are a few people, honestly, who are more knowledgeable and more effective than you are at kind of explaining this. Um, and the anti-China sentiment in the U.S., even on the left, is perplexingly high. Um, and I was wondering if you could cut through some of the anti-China propaganda, propaganda and explain to us how we should really be perceiving China. Well, you know, Ryan, I'm really happy about this because people do need to pay attention to um, this growing, bewildering, dangerous anti-China sentiment. It's dangerous because... Um, United States seems to be intent on poking two ends of Eurasia, both China and Russia, you know, provoking. I don't know what they're trying to provoke, honestly, Ryan. Um, you know, Biden has really put the stick out there on the Ukraine border and at the South China Sea around Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs and so on. Um, there seems to be a dialed up tension. You know, we're talking now, um, you know, the spinal tap moment. Don't put it to 10, put it to 11. Uh, they seem to have just gone off the charts with their belligerence. Um, and this is coming from the United States. You know, we, we'll hear in the news reporting in the New York Times and so on that China is being aggressive or Russia is being aggressive. Well, the fact is that both China and Russia have said, listen, we don't want a conflict. Um, you haven't heard that from the United States. And yet, you know, the media constantly says that they are aggressive. You know, Putin is aggressive and so on. Um, so it's important to have this conversation. I think the first thing for people to understand is China is a country of 1.4 billion. Um, that's 1.4 billion. Uh, the United States is in that 0.4 billion. If, if you want to get some perspective, around 370 odd million people, 350 million. There's a whole billion people more in China than in the United States. You know, just to give people some perspective. The Communist Party in China has 95 million members. Um, I think I may be wrong about this, but I think that's four and a half times the New York City population. That four and a half times, four and a half New York cities are members of the Chinese Communist, the Communist Party of China. Okay, 
that's incredible um now unless you have a racist attitude toward the chinese all chinese believe the same thing and so on you know how people have a racist attitude saying i can't tell one person from china apart from another you might end up saying oh i can't they all think the same or whatever some of the unless you have that kind of racist attitude toward the chinese you got to acknowledge that 95 million people don't always agree with each other and that's certainly the case in the uh, communist party it's also certainly the case in the government which is a very complicated business i think people don't realize that yes there's a central government in beijing there's a central chinese state but the provincial governments are very strong it's actually fairly decentralized in terms of administration so you know where the coronavirus was first detected in the town of wuhan it's in hubei province hubei province shanxi province these provinces have a lot of autonomy from beijing so there's a lot of interesting ways in which the country is you know uh, uh, operates it's not possible ryan it's not possible for one man xi jinping to dominate 1.4 billion it's just not logical even even if you don't know anything about china you'd have to be extraordinarily blinded to believe that xi jinping is holding the country in his iron fist and the other kind of stuff you read in the press or you watch on you know youtube and social media and so on it's got its own forms of democracy and i know that sounds crazy to people who have come to understand and believe that china is authoritarian um, it has its own kind of democracy uh, it has its own way of dealing with information of dealing with decision making you know that's what democracy is the spread of information who gets to make decisions who controls resources and so on xi jinping doesn't sit down and say the entire budget this is how we're going to spend it again it's quite decentralized to provinces to major cities and so on these the people who run the provinces the governors they have a lot of authority and power so there's a lot of people involved in china in its management and governance so i just want people to get it out of their heads that it's you know some sort of authoritarian country with xi jinping as the strong man um doesn't work like that guys it's more complicated i've been to china many times i admit i haven't seen everything because 1.4 billion people and it's a huge country man i'm not going to presume to have traveled to meet everybody talk to every dissenter i've i've met some of the dissenters in china i understand what's going on okay not i'm not like i don't i'm a journalist principally i don't claim to be a scholar who you know says i know everything and so on I, i get a sense of what's happening but the first thing i know logically everybody in china doesn't think alike there are lots of debates and and so on and also i've learned uh, very clearly that the chinese don't want to provoke a conflict with the united states they've been trying to get out of the trade war since it began at the time of obama they're not interested they don't want a war looks like the united states wants a war then the question comes why why is the us so intent on punishing um china and i'm going to give you ryan two answers to that that are complementary um the first has to do with china's long history in the 1820s china was one of the largest economies on the planet you know then it suffered what the chinese call a century of humiliation that's what they call it the opium wars imposed by the british um the destruction of its economy the control of major ports by the imperialist powers including shanghai taken over by the europeans um you know the decimation of china in the long war from 1937 marco polo bridge incident with the japanese invaded 
until 1949. It's the longest Second World War on the planet. Most Europe had it from 39, 1939, 1945. China's Second World War was from 1937 to 1949. The country was destroyed. When the communists take power in Beijing, just mark the words of Mao Zedong. He says, China has stood up. He's referring to that century of humiliation. So the first thing you've got to understand about the, the communist movement from 1949 onward is it, had, it wanted to establish the sovereignty and the standing of China in the world. This is very important to the Chinese project. There's almost unanimity of opinion in the Chinese intelligentsia and in, in much of the political leadership that China must not subordinate itself to the rest of the world. Now, this is a direct clash with countries like the United States and Europe who say, look, it's okay, China is fine, you know, but they are not a principal country. They are a second power. The principal countries are Germany, France, Britain, United States, Canada, maybe Japan and so on. These are the leading countries. They can dictate policy. They will decide the rules. China, India, nothing. You know, in fact, a, Germ a German admiral in New Delhi just 10 days ago, he said something innocuous. He's the head of the German military. He said something innocuous. He said, we should treat Putin with respect. And he had to resign. Because in fact, it is not correct. You should not treat Putin with respect, should not treat Xi Jinping. You should treat them as how you see them, which is they're supposed to be subordinates. Mm -hmm. So the first reason that China is, is rocking the apple cart is China is saying, hey, listen, we are not your coolies. We are not your serfs. We are people. We are going to take, we are going to stand up, actually. Mao said, China stood up. Actually, what Mao was really saying was that China will eventually stand up. And now it's standing up. We have to deal with that. Second thing is that China initially took a long time to take care of people's well-being. The health indicators improved. They ate better from 1949 till the 70s. They opened up the economy. Deng Xiaoping, who was the premier at the time, made a bargain, particularly in 1992, he goes to uh, Singapore and meets uh, Lee Kuan Yew, the, the leader of Singapore. And Deng Xiaoping comes back and he says, listen, we have a really good working class in China. You know, it's well-fed, it's relatively educated. Um, they are not suffering from despondency and from, you know, disease and so on. Like for instance, the Indian working class, which is much less well-fed and so on. He says, we'll, we're willing to turn over the working class to the international markets, but international companies that enter China have to give us their science and technology. That was the deal that Deng made. Companies were like, we want to go to China. And they came willingly. Nobody forced French, German, US companies. They all came willingly. There was no forcing of them, no authoritarian demand that they come. They came willingly. They handed over their, their science and tech to the Chinese. That was in the 1990s. Today, in many sectors, in telecommunications, in robotics and so on, China is, you know, years away from Western companies because they took that science, they took that tech and they developed it. And now they are leaders in the fields like Huawei is a leader in telecommunications. That's the second reason China has to be clipped. Its wings have to be clipped. How dare they stand up and how dare they outflank the principal sectors of economic power, which is telecommunications, robotic, high-speed rail, green technology, and so on. And that's really the conflict over China. It's got zero to do with Xinjiang, Hong Kong, any of that. Look, 
United States' greatest pal is Saudi Arabia. You want to talk about human rights? Let's talk about human rights. Excellent. That's an excellent point. Um, and speaking a little, can you dig in a little bit more about the domestic situation in China versus that of the U.S.? You know, for instance, the progress that China's made, um, and you look at the U.S., the progress the U.S. made um, initially was through slave labor. Uh, China, my understanding of China and, and the USSR uh, didn't use slave labor and, and look at the progress they made. Well, look, firstly, let's be honest. It's a deeply poor country. Still, it's still struggling with poverty. You know, it, it was devastated from 1820 and it has not fully recovered. Let's be quite frank. It's a very poor country. I first visited China with my mother. We went on a tour in the 1980s. Uh, not very long, brief, went a little bit in the countryside. And, you know, I was pretty impressed by how well-dressed people were compared to the Indian countryside, you know, food. Okay, it it compared favorably to the Indian countryside I'd seen, particularly in northern India, in Uttar Pradesh uh, and so on, where the conditions for um, peasants, uh, you know, landless laborers is pretty abysmal. The caste system, you know, really... It's very rigid and, and harsh against people. Nutrition levels are low. So compared to India, China in the 80s, it was pretty impressive. But it's a desperately poor country, man. I mean, you know, people still had very much the old ways. And you didn't see um, in many rural areas, you didn't see, uh, you know, people living in, in houses that would withstand the weather and so on. People were struggling to survive. That was there, despite the advances and so on. Um, even today, you know, it's not like it's paradise. There's a lot of progress that needs to be made, uh, particularly in terms of things like, um, you know, building deeper democratic uh, possibilities for people in localities and, and so on. Uh, it's There's lots of challenges, you know. Uh, and also there is, there is a, a section of the state and a section of the Chinese um, you know, main political uh, flanks that are quite right-wing in their orientation. You know, they have views of markets must dominate. They've been influenced by the currents coming from the West and so on. They exist in China. You know, they believe in markets, not in, in socialism. That's a section of, of the, the Communist Party. Uh, you know, Professor Chen Fu came to uh, India about 10 years ago, gave a lecture about the several schools of thought in China. And one of them was was Jeffersonian liberalism. One was basically Adam Smith free market. These currents exist. So there's a class struggle inside China even till today. There have been advances, yes, but there are lots of problems. And that's where Xi Jinping comes in. When Xi Jinping comes to power as the president in 2013, um, he's extraordinarily sensitive given his own history and the fact that he represents a left of center flank inside the Communist Party. He's, he was extraordinarily sensitive to the problem of absolute poverty, to social inequality, to the rise of um, particularly tech barons inside China like Jack Ma and so on. And since 2013, in these seven, eight years, uh, in the initial period, it went quite slow, but in the last period during the pandemic, certainly it's accelerated. They were able to um, eradicate absolute poverty. That's amazing. You know, by between 1949 and now, about 800 million people lifted themselves out of poverty. The last 120 million were the most stubborn, as, as it were. Many of them social minorities that lived in remote areas and so on. It was difficult to 
um, get the poverty alleviation, um, you know, technologies uh, to them. Um, you know, uh, so that's that was one. He's been going after the big barons of of high finance and of of tech. You know, Jack Ma's wings have been clipped. Uh, there's no doubt about that. He's been trying to go after social inequality. So in these last seven and eight years, a section of the left has been in power in Chi in China. Um, and I, I mean, I'm quite happy to talk like this. Okay, Ryan, that there is a right and a left because the class struggle continues. The Chinese will tell you this. The intellectuals will tell you directly. It's a contest, you know. It's not a homogenous situation. Um, so when you ask, what's the domestic situation like? Well, that's what it's like. It's a contest. Uh, one section says, let's go and privatize more of the big state concerns. The other side, Xi Jinping says, no, we're going to do it this way. We'll abolish poverty. We'll tackle social inequality. And then there's a further to the left section that wants to go and build the state sector in a bigger way and so on. But they are much weaker. They are infinitely weak. The left that has got uh, now some credibility is the left led by Xi Jinping. The right is still there. Mm. And what about things like you, you see in the US, the, um, I don't know if you saw on the news, um, in Pittsburgh a week ago, a, a bridge collapses. Um, and we, you know the, we have an infrastructure bill here that is essentially toothless, but in China, they're building high-speed railways left and right. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, it has to do with the way a country decides to use its resources. Um, in the United States, uh, because of the class power of the big elites, um, there's a kind of tax strike. If we're just clear, the big elites refuse to pay tax in the U.S. You know, the, of course, the giant tech giants, they will never get their wings clipped. No Biden, no Trump, no nobody is going to clip the wings of, you know, uh, the big barons of, of, of finance, even Jeff Bezos. Will Bezos ever have to experience what Jack Ma experienced in China? I doubt it, you know. So, uh, you know, in the United States, the money dominates and they're not paying tax and so on. And so there's just no money for infrastructure because money firstly doesn't pay tax and whatever resources you have go to the military and to the security establishment and so on. So Biden shows up and says something quite rational and realistic. Let's have an infrastructure bill. How could you disagree with that? Again, the bridge collapses, crumbling infrastructure. Last time I was in Manhattan, I was like, no, come on, you know, something needs to be done about some of these tunnels. You know, you can see the leak in the tunnel and you're like, oh gosh, please, there's got to be regular maintenance. You know, it's dangerous. I don't want to alarm anybody, but I personally looked at that and said, this is a little scary for me. Um, you know, the airports need to be refurbished. Forget airports. Let's concentrate on buses and subways where the working class uses. Um, subways need to be, uh, you know, uh, improved. Why is it that, that, I mean, I don't know New York as well as you. You live there. But certainly I, I know from my experience that trains that seem to go to the outer areas, to the working class areas are less frequent. Um, train that goes from Manhattan to the Brooklyn, you know, the hip areas of Brooklyn seem to be going like this. But trains going up to the Bronx, you never get a train. So on and so forth. It's a class decision, you know, to spend money on infrastructure. And Biden's bill failed. Um, in China, at the same time, I want to say there's been a debate. Some sections say, no, no, we should give tax breaks to the big wealthy. You know, Others say, no, we take the resources and we build infrastructure, we fix investment in the landscape. 
that's what they've been doing that's a certain class orientation when you go to china public transport is incredible now i can criticize some aspects like i feel like sometimes in some parts of china there's too much emphasis on automobiles too many uh, freeways built junk the cars build public trains you know there's amazing public trains but build more of them junk the car that's a debate we can have okay so it's not going to happen immediately but it's a debate nonetheless they don't have a problem with infrastructure spending this is not authoritarianism this is a class decision and that's key people in the us might say well okay it's easy for them to build bridges because they are authoritarian wait a minute if they were authoritarian why didn't they just take the surplus and eat caviar every day and build and buy islands you know like jeffrey epstein and go off on your plane to your island and do god knows what all <laughs> you don't seem to do that they decide to use their surplus to build infrastructure to improve people's lives and so on that's a class decision ryan that's not about the nature of your decision making process it's not a abstract question of how decisions are made it's a question of what decisions are made and in the united states the dominant ruling class you know has the grip on on this kind of decision making you can't say you know i remember i followed this debate ryan they said oh it's 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 joe manchin and it's that other senator kristen sirisma um, you know wait a minute that's just two of them what about the all the republican senators who opposed the infrastructure bill why are they picking on these two right wing democrats <laughs> the whole republican party is opposed to infrastructure because they have a class orientation don't give a damn about the the tunnel that links new york city to new jersey because their constituency flies by helicopter <laughs> they don't care about the damn tunnel they don't need to have subway you know improved they don't ride the subway they come by limo Uh, or as i say by helicopter or, or whatever they paraglide from the hamptons uh, to the canyons of high finance in new york city they don't need subways so that's a class decision that's not about democracy and the procedural aspects of our decisions are made and similarly what is china's approach to the global south compared to that of the us and europe i mean here again i i i'm not I'm not a, a person who shies away from the truth, you know. Um when we talk about China uh, approaching let's say countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, um we got to be clear about what we're talking about. There are Chinese private companies that operate in Africa and so on, and the private companies that come from China are not that different from private companies in Europe and the United States, you know, because they are motivated by profit, okay? so there your flag is irrelevant what unites you is their capitalist concerns okay so there are chinese private companies that operate then i think there's a little bit of a, a confusion here the media will talk about china in zambia but what china if we're talking about the private sector i agree it's pretty wretched you know whether it's you know coming with a swiss flag or a chinese flag or a us flag these are wretched capitalist capitalist firms are wretched when they go abroad to invest in fact they are wretched wherever they are um in my opinion in, not only my opinion but the evidence shows you that okay so there's that the private company then there are state companies even here there's a difference there are state companies that come in as state banks making investments like the banks that made an investment in the entebbe airport in uganda uh, they come in they make an investment uh, the terms of the deal are pretty much better than the terms of any of the western banks private banks 
and certainly also better than the terms of the development banks, including the World Bank. People have looked at the contracts. It's very clear that the Chinese development projects are actually a better uh, situation than many of the Western. Now, it's also true that this is not charity. They are out there to recover their investments and so on. So you, what are you comparing them to? You have to compare the Belt and Road financing to the IMF-backed financing. If you compare these two, the Chinese actually come off better. They are more forgiving of loans. They have longer-term investments and so on. If you compare it to a gift, obviously it's terrible. Um, the best kind of, of investment is an investment that comes for free, where you get money as a gift and then there's no need to pay it back or anything. And you can do a lot of things with the gift. You can also just eat it all up or you can build something. You don't have to worry about the consequences of particularly infrastructure. You know, if you're building a bridge, you don't want to have to pay off the bridge to a bank, you know, the loan, because the bridge is not going to earn you money, you know, by itself. The bridge will connect things. It may increase economic activity, but you don't want to put a toll barrier on a bridge. The moment you've done that, it's undemocratic. Then it's a regressive tax. It hurts the poor more than the rich and so on. So infrastructure projects, you really don't want to finance them by taking a loan. You want grants of one kind or the other, or the government should. So these are very complicated issues, but I, I just want to say that the best thing is if people could just get the infrastructure built through the money we'll take away, the $37 trillion that's sitting in illicit tax havens. Let's just grab all that money and build infrastructure on the planet, put productive use to the plutocrats' money sitting in tax havens. That's That'll be better than even the Chinese investment, Ryan, if I'm honest with you, because, you know, we'll just use it as a gift. Uh, build the bridge, build the airport, revive your thing, do this, do that. Um, any investment that comes from outside is going to come with restrictions and barriers. You may throw your eyebrows out, but if you compare Belt and Road by and large with the IMF funding, the Belt and Road is better by and large. You can always find that one instance and that's what the article will be written on. And then they'll say that's it's a debt trap financing and so on. Whereas the entire IMF backed financing regime is debt trap financing. Um, and the I have kind of a statement. I hate when interviewers at, you know have statements, but I have a statement. I wanted to get your your thoughts on it. Um, the lack of internationalist consciousness on the left in the U.S. is so astounding that even those on the left that proclaim that public enemy number one is white supremacy curiously support not just the U.S. government's anti-China rhetoric, but their war against China. Uh, meanwhile, it's China that has white supremacy on the ropes and has called out the U.S. on the international stage for its past and ongoing brutality and violence against black Americans, for example. Um, yet the left in the U.S. somehow fails to see not just the importance of the rise of China, but the endless strategic opportunities that exist with trying to build a strategic alliance with China to further their stated domestic goals. What are your thoughts about that? The First thing I would say that, the again, China is a place on the planet Earth. Um, Chinese people are real people, living people with all their flaws and complications and inheritances from the past. One of the great inheritances from the past is that China struggles and continues to struggle with the question of the minority populations in China, whether they are the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or they are the Tibetans or the Miao people or whatever. There's, you know, 
range of minority people. Right after the revolution, the Chinese uh, communist movement set up a national minorities commission. It was, by the way, headed by the Dalai Lama in the 1950s uh, because they recognized full well that minority populations, many living in the peripheries of China, are neglected in every kind of policy-making decision. And Xi Jinping took this very seriously. If you're going to eradicate absolute poverty, you're going to have to tackle the minority question. So put that front and center. So I don't want to say that, you know, China is criticizing the problem of racism in the U.S., but it's perfection. No, it's struggling with its own history of majoritarianism of the Han people and the minority question and so on. It's a big struggle. It's going to take them 100 years plus to deal with. You know, this whole business of the Uyghurs, you know, you can be sanctimonious in the United States and say, oh, they are committing genocide. But let's look at the history of the U.S. You haven't yet completed the problem of eradicating racism. Give them some time to deal with the you know, majoritarianism and the move against, uh, you know, the kind of, the, I think, quite offensive way in which minorities are treated. That's there in China as well. Again, you don't need to go to listen to the CIA or the State Department on this. Go and read Mao's writings about great Han chauvinism, you know. This is not acceptable in China. It's very similar to what Lenin was writing against great Russian chauvinism regarding the Kazakhs, the, you know, the Dagestanis, um, the, you know, so-called the minority populations of the USSR. Very similar. By the way, Xinjiang's full name is the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. For those who believe that the Uyghurs are being wiped out, just recall that the Chinese government hasn't changed the name of that province. Uh, it's still officially called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. So they are dealing with their own problems. You know, I don't want to say it's perfection. You know, people say, oh, there's a genocide. You know, I don't think it is. If you take the the UN Convention on Genocide's definition from 1951, it's not genocide compared to that definition. Um, you know, the definition was written based on the experience in Nazi Germany, where there was an actual genocide in progress, where they were actually killing uh, people uh, of a Jewish heritage from around Europe. They were actually being massacred. Six million of them were massacred. No such thing, no evidence of such massacring is taking place in Xinjiang. So we need to be a little sober in our understanding. There are, of course, problems in China because, again, remember, they're on the planet Earth. These are people. They're dealing with their own inheritances, including what Mao called Great Han uh, chauvinism and so on. So that, that's the first thing I just want to put on the table, Ryan, because it confuses a lot of people. They, they have to either say, yes, there's a genocide. No, there's no genocide. They don't recognize there are real problems that a country has to deal with, but you've got to understand its problems patiently, not with slogans, you know. Even the United States, I, I don't walk around saying, oh my God, you know, this, that, and that. No, white supremacy is very difficult to uproot. It's going to take 100 years more, perhaps, you know. It's rooted in, in the institutions. It's rooted in the culture. It's rooted in the way people interact with each other and so on. It's going to take a long time to uproot it. You have to struggle and fight to uproot it. You can't just, you know, pass a law or just pretend it'll go away. No, it's a fight, you know. I see behind you, you got Malcolm X there. Boy, Malcolm X understood this perfectly. You know, it was, it's a struggle. You've got to fight. You've got to engage people, deal with this. Same in China, you know. So I don't want to put China on a pedestal because that's also a wrong attitude. You know, it's not perfection. It's a process. The revolution is a process. It's not an event. It takes place over time. 
people on the left need to chill out a little bit you know uh, especially those who are so quick to jump on the state department bandwagon they need to chill out they need to study a little more they need to think a little more about what it means to build a country from poverty um, into you know whatever journey we're taking uh, you know i grew up in india as extremely poor country um, the journey is hard to move from that kind of poverty which was exacerbated under colonialism into some level of freedom you know marx and engels used to write about the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom um these countries are not in the realm of freedom yet they are still in the realm of necessity uh, united states cannot claim to be the realm of freedom if it were in the realm of freedom people would not be hungry in the us uh, if it were in the realm of freedom people would not be so desolate and you know despairing of what's happening to their lives without health insurance so many people dying i don't know what the current number is covid deaths you know over what i know hundreds of thousands of people i mean it's extraordinary um this is not the uh, uh time uh, or you know uh, the the point in human history where we can declare any part of the world is in the realm of freedom we're all in a struggle together let's have some international solidarity the warm embrace of solidarity way more importance to me than the self righteous of sections of the pseudo us left you know um the nation magazine and so on uh, that's a pseudo kind of left attitude we are seeking to build together uh, not to judge from afar thank you and i have i could ask you questions into perpetuity but i want to be respectful of your time i wanted to ask you about chile but i don't know if you have a few minutes or 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 not Well now that you put it like that you better ask away and then I can answer that and disappear from you so let's get to that yes please okay so I understand that you're 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 in Chile um and you've met with Gabriel Boric I was wondering what your thoughts were about his historic victory It's really significant that Gabriel Boric is going to be inaugurated as the president in March uh, there's no doubt it's hugely significant it's significant because Chile had a democratic socialist experiment between 1970 and 73 under the presidency of Salvador Allende Allende was overthrown by a US green-lighted coup in 73 uh, Augusto Pinochet came to power they set a, a constitution in 1980 which continues to exist today the 1980 dictatorship constitution continues till today dictatorship formally ended in 1990 but the constitution remained So actually two things are happening in Chile that are very significant. One is a new constitution is being written. This is the real moment of um uprooting the dictatorship. And secondly, Gabriel comes into power a great admirer of Salvador Allende himself, but you know, he comes in a country which has never actually fully uh you know uprooted the history of the dictatorship. He ran against a guy who was openly for the Pinochet era. That's Mr. Cast whose father was a Nazi. I mean a real Nazi in Germany he was a Nazi who went to Chile and and Mr Cast has never you know said anything about that um there in Chile there was no impunity you know people just got away with um being you know associated with the dictatorship there was no real reconciliation no truth and reconciliation commission nothing like that you know they haven't actually faced up to the truth so it's impossible therefore to expect Gabriel Boric to govern as a far left kind of guy you know he is governing in a country that is actually still teetering between you know mythology of the dictatorship and a desire for something new 
So I, I, I feel like every advance is an advance. I'm a practical person in that respect. So I don't judge Gabriel against, you know, some absurd standard. I judge him based on the dynamic of Chilean history and possibility. And I, and I hope very much that Gabriel will advance certain things like that, you know, the constitution will come out and it will be a good progressive constitution, invalidate the dictator's constitution. I hope very much that Gabriel will do the things he has promised to do, reform pensions on behalf of people. I hope very much, and the constitution is already going to have this in it, but I hope he nationalizes the copper industry, again, bringing it under state control, lifting the royalties against the copper companies and so on. These are things he's promised, and I hope he'll do. Is he going to advance the country to socialism? Not by half measures. You know, the journey will begin, but that's not his temperament. They're going to reform elements of Chilean life. Chile, by the way, only has a population of 17 million. That's about the population of New York City. You know, um, it's a very small country. It's long and small and significant politically. But it's a small country. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, those are all the questions I have for you. I don't know if you have anything you want to add before we break. I'm really happy that we were able to talk, Ryan. And, and you know, I hope that we'll stay in touch. And I really do want to say um, behind you are some of the highlights of all kinds of people. You've got, you know, everybody there. It's great to talk to you. I was enjoying looking at your bookshelf. Thank you. So I thanks a lot. It. Thank you. Thank you for your time. A true honor. Thanks.